Go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Ezra chapter 1. Ezra chapter 1. As you turn there, this, this morning is going to be a, uh, a little bit different of a message than what, um, what we typically do. We're going to, um, I'll kind of introduce it in just a minute. But one time, a couple of years ago, this is maybe four or five years ago, I went skydiving, um, which was a very cool experience. And um, because I just really do live for danger and I live my life at the, on the edge. And so I, I went skydiving. And, um, and, and one time I was sharing this, like a couple weeks after I went, I was sharing this with a guy. Um, uh, with a friend of mine, and I was all excited. Like, I was still, like, it was just an adrenaline rush, and I was still in the adrenaline rush and sharing with him how I'd been it, how I'd done it and stuff. And this guy who I was sharing with, he, he does special ops for a government agency. So he's, like, he's like a real-life, like, action movie star, right? He just, that's what he does for a living. And he's like, oh, that's so cool that you went skydiving. He's like, yeah, I have to go 10 times a month, you know, to keep up with my training, you know? And it's like, okay. Well, I don't have a guy on my back. Like, I just do it by myself. But it's still cool that you did that, you know what I mean? And so I couldn't even have my moment with him where I'm like, I did one cool thing, and now you're just telling me that you do that, like, you know, every other day. But, and there's really no point in me telling you that I went skydiving other than so that you would see me as kind of cool. Um, other than to say, I remember when we were riding up in the plane. So we've all, probably most of us have been on planes, and, and normally when you're leaving from the airport, you kind of get a view of the airport or maybe some immediately, you know, immediate surroundings. But this plane ride, we were riding up, and it's this little prop plane, you know, it only fits four people in total, and you're just, you're riding up, we, we, we were over this little peninsula, and I just remember seeing, like, for the first time in my life, like, oh, I understand what the aerial view of something is, as you just saw, like, the entire peninsula with total clarity, and all the streets just look different, you could see the grid of how everything laid out, and you could see the streets and just the, the organization and the flow and just how everything went, how everything just sort of met together. You could sort of just see the entire sort of peninsula and just like, oh, this, this just all makes sense in a way that you didn't see at the street level. You just had a different clarity and focus as you were 5,000 feet above the ground. And, and this morning, I want to, we're sort of in a transition, right? So we spent the last few weeks, John and Leo served us well, just t talking about different topics, and we're going to do baptism, Lord willing, next Sunday. And then we're going to jump into Esther the week following. But wanted to just first review and, and just look at where we've been in our Citizen Exile series as we've covered the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. And we've gone chapter by chapter, which I think has been good, and, and to sort of take the topics as they come to us. And we've sort of approached the books at sort of a street-level view. But this morning, I just want to do a, a, a flyover before we, hit, before we start the third and final book of our series, just a, a little bit higher level of, of the books as a whole and see what, what, is, what is it that we can take from them. What is it, as we look at the flyover view, that we can take as citizen exiles today to, to learn from those returned exiles who, who lived in this community surrounded by the broader community that was opposed to them and their values? What can we learn from them who, who long for and look forward to their permanent home? And so that's sort of the plan today. I want to just give a very quick recap of the books, but just to have six takeaways that, that apply to our lives that we can learn from them today. Six, six almost if you would, just dispositions that we should adopt as we learn from these books, that we just kind of see, boy, boy, as you go through Ezra and Nehemiah, not just one point, you know, not just one point in one chapter, but as you look at the story as a whole, what are, what are, what are takeaways that should affect our lives and give us a framework, not just to, for, for when we read the books in the future, but a framework for just what does God have for us today 
as citizen exiles. So with that, we're not going to read the entirety of the two books. Um, we're just going um, to read Ezra 1, 1 through 7. That really is the, uh, obviously it's how the books begin. But really, what we see in Ezra 1 through, 1, 1 through 7 is sort of, it lays the groundwork of all that's going to follow. All that follows in Ezra and Nehemiah is really the fulfillment of what we read about here. So in just a moment, I'm going to ask you to stand as we read that. But again, just the context as we enter the book of Ezra. So God's people, just in case this isn't fresh in your mind, God's people, were, they were in exile due to their sins. So they were a conquered people. They were a people who were conquered by the Babylonians in the, in the year 586. So about 586, they're conquered people under Babylonian rule. And about 50 years later is when Ezra chapter 1 begins. And in, in those 50 years, what happened since then, the Babylonians were actually conquered by the Persians. And so Cyrus is, is the king of the Persians, and so he is now the ruler. And so it's the year 539 B.C., and what, what do we find of, of, this, of this, the city that, of, of Jerusalem? That the city is in ruins, the temple of God is in ruins, and spiritually God's people are in ruins. They are a scattered and defeated people as we enter the book of Ezra. So with that, I'm going to ask you if you are able to stand as we read Ezra chapter 1, verses 1 through 7 together. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put, in write, put it in writing. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you of all his people, may his God be with him, and let him go to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem. And let each survivor in whatever place he sojourns be assisted by the men of his place with silver with, and gold, with goods and with beasts, besides free will offerings for the house of God that is in Jerusalem. Then rose up the heads of the fathers' houses and, of Judah and Benjamin, and the priests and the Levites, everyone whose spirit God had stirred up to go rebuild the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem. And all who were about them aided them with the vessels of silver, with gold, with goods, with beasts, and with costly wares. Besides all that was freely offered. Cyrus the king also brought out the vessels of the house of the Lord that Nebuchadnezzar had carried away from Jerusalem and placed it in the house of his gods. Well, you may be seated. So in Ezra chapter 1, what do we see? We see this decree. So as God's people were scattered, as God's people were defeated, as God's people were really in isolation from one another there because of their sin, in Ezra chapter 1, we see God stir up this secular king to, to have the people go back and rebuild the temple of the Lord. And so the people begin to gather and to go to be rebuilt. In, verse, in, chapter, in chapter 2 of Ezra, it's, it's 70 verses of the names of those who went back, this first wave of, the, of those who went back. Then in Ezra 3 through 6, the temple and the altar are rebuilt. So there's lots of starts, there's a lot of stops, there's a lot of opposition along the way. They just meet enemy after enemy, but yet it gets done. Then as, after Ezra chapter 6, about 50 years pass, and there's a new king on the throne, Artaxerxes. And he sends then Ezra to go back and to be priest. So though the temple is rebuilt and the altar is rebuilt, the people still spiritually are not really being led and guided. So Ezra goes back to be priest. 
And in Ezra chapter 7 through 10, the people go back and they do a lot of repenting. So there's a lot of sin that has, been, that has led to exile. There's been a lot of sin in their return. The predominant sin has been the sin of intermarriage to people of, of other nations that do not believe in Yahweh explicitly against what God had told them to do. So for four chapters, we see just this theme of repentance and rebuilding. And so the end of Ezra, the temple is rebuilt and the people are beginning sort of this revival in their midst. And then in Nehemiah, the story picks up right from there. And in chapter one in Nehemiah, Nehemiah himself is sent from, from this new king. Nehemiah was a cupbearer of the king and Nehemiah is sent to go not just bring spiritual leadership, but to really bring civic leadership to the people. And under his leadership, despite obstacles and opponents, once again, and just God's enemies just really being opposed to them at every step, the, the wall to the city is rebuilt, the foundations of the city are rebuilt, and the city itself of Jerusalem begins, begins to be reestablished, and reform continues. They renew their covenant with God. We find another couple of chapters and over 100 verses of of more names of those who come to of those who come to return as the return sort of happened in wave after wave and so we see more names and more verses of those who came to rebuild but reformation was happening this rebu- this rebuilding was happening and so that's really continuing throughout the book of Nehemiah of just sort of gradual step after gradual step and sort of there was this theme you know you take a step forward and then step back but there was this movement forward but then the book of Nehemiah actually ends on a down note as Nehemiah goes back to his original position to cupbearer of the king, and the people once again fall into the same patterns that, they, that had led them to exile. And then the book just sort of ends. Jerusalem is mostly rebuilt. The city is mostly coming back and repopulated and and really despite sort of opposition after opposition and wave after wave despite really people's you wouldn't even say despite people's best efforts to almost at times it was their best efforts to not rebuild but sort of despite the weakness of the people and the sin of the people and just sort of their constant for every inch moving forward inch moving back the 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 city is rebuilt and it's beginning to be repopulated and the people are better off than when they started though it's very much clear that they are still in desperate need of a Savior. So there's just this theme throughout the books of restoration and rebuilding and leadership and its effects. And for all the rebuilding that takes place physically in the city, we see so much building taking place within the people, but so much building that's left needing to be done within them. And that's about 100 years of history so I just want to ask at a very high level, what is it that we are to learn from these people who are in exile over this hundred years? What are, what, are, what are some takeaways or lessons that apply to us as we live here ex, as, as exiles from our permanent home, as we build this imperfect community together as God's exiles, surrounded by the broader community, those without our values, as we look forward to our permanent home, what are, what are some lessons? So the six things that I want to look at that we're just going to hit on briefly, but I, I just think that can give us a sort of a disposition of, of how we should think as citizen exiles here and now. So six lessons from Ezra and Nehemiah. The first is this, the first is this, that renewal, renewal takes a long time. So these books 
cover about 100 years. And in the end, not all ended right. So the city and the walls and the temple were rebuilt. The people were better off spiritually than where they had been before. But the pattern for about 100 years in this book is, man, for every two steps forward, they would just take like a step and a half back. And it took a long time. You know, how many times was, you know, you know, hey, remember the problem that was, you know, in chapter 5? Well, that's the same problem in chapter 6 and in chapter 7 and in chapter 8. Like, they are just, they are just moving glacially slow at times. They, re, they would return in these waves, but these waves of return were just decades apart. So, over 100 years they advanced, but they advanced about an inch at a time, it would appear which is actually very much like the Christian life. You know, for me, growth is so often really slow. There are, there are areas in my life that growth is just painfully slow. Like, there, there are things, I, I became a Christian when I was 19 years old. There, there were things that the moment I became a Christian, just never again did, never tempted by, just, for re, just a total 180 in my life. And then there are issues that I am weak at, I'm age 42, right? I'm weak at age 42 and at 41 and 40 and 39 and 37 and 36 and I could keep going, right? Just, it feels like the same issue, just, it's, it's like an inch at a time in my life of growth. And there, there's issues in our marriage, right, that just two days in, it just felt like, man, they, they, there's just some tremendous sources of strength in our marriage. And then there's things that 16 years into marriage that we just see growth has just been really incremental at times. That doesn't mean he's not at work. And it doesn't mean that I'm not growing. It doesn't mean he's not going to complete what he began. It doesn't mean that we aren't growing See, sometimes growth can be so slow, or we, we can be deceived, and we can be fooled, and we can think, this is how it's always going to be. But there will be a day when we do look like Jesus Christ. But it takes a long time. It takes all of this earthly life. And so we just need to recognize that as exiles here, growth will be slow. But it doesn't mean something is wrong it just means God's at work sanctifying every square inch, but renewal is slow, but we need to make no mistake, we will be made new completely. Every square inch will be made new. So if, if you just see at times that growth is slow, let me encourage you not, not to slow down, but to, to, to just to press ahead, but just to recognize that God, God takes the long view of history and God takes the long view of our life and He is at work purifying every square inch of our lives. And as we look at, the li at our lives, it's, we should be less concerned most of the time at the, at the rate of growth as much as the trajectory that we are on. And do we see, boy, yeah, it, it's been slow, but yeah, over time, there has been this growth in our life. And as we walk in Christian community with one another, at times, listen, there are so many times where just, boy, like, I would just love for, you know, this person, this situation, just to be made new now. We just got to recognize that we need to see that the trajectory others are on as, as more important than the rate we want them to go.
So, second thing we see from this book, second lesson I think for us today that should affect our disposition is that exiles have names. Exiles has na have names. I, this, will be, this will be brief, but I wanted to mention, you know, and this was mentioned in the recap, right, that entire chapters were devoted. There was, I mean, hundreds and hundreds of verses devoted to the names of the exiles and of the families and of the leaders who came back, right? Now, there's, there's reasons for this. You could look at the historic recounting. You could look at how it wants to, how people wanted to trace their lineage and all, all these reasons to recount. But, but they, take a, they take a long time, right? I mean, this, there's a lot of verses devoted to this. And if you read through these sections, if you remember going through them, it was, it was, it was exacting. He never said, you know, about 2,000 people came back. I mean, they were given exact numbers. They, didn't, they never said, you know, that family, yeah, had about 100 people in that group. It was, it, it was name after name, precise number after precise number. Now, I'll, I'll be honest, at times it can be easy to, to skip past the names and want to move into the action and move into the drama of the story. But you know what I love? I, I think... One of the things we see in Ezra and Nehemiah is this exactness, this, the, the detail of person after person after person is reflective of God's heart because he was the one who wanted each name recorded and known and accounted for because these just aren't names, but these are each God's people. And we don't we don't know much about them. Many of them will seem relatively insignificant to us. But they are not insignificant to God. And every name here matters to God. The people of God aren't generally sort of a group that he's generally aware of who sort of came in this wave of sort of, sort of when they were brought reform. But every name there, every number there, he specifically calls and cares for of each of his people. And they may be anonymous to the rest of the world. They may be overlooked even by the world and the community that they were living in. But they were not overlooked. And they were not unknown by God. And we just, as citizen exiles here, we just, we just need to be aware that, listen, so much of our parenting... So much of what we labor for, so much of the, the way we try to love the, the world and the community and the family around us is going to be unseen. And most people will not notice most of what we do. We will spend most of our lives pouring out all of our energy to serve others who at times will barely glance up to notice what's happening. And there will be times where on earth we feel relatively anonymous or we feel relatively minor in the grand scheme of God's purposes. But you need to know that you are known and you matter to the King of Kings, the sovereign God of history. And it is worth being, it's worth being trading to be written in all the books of this world to be written and recorded in his book. And if you have trusted in Jesus Christ, if you have trusted in God, you are known and you are loved by Him. And so there is just no correlation to our status on earth and our status in the kingdom because every exile has a name known by God. Third, third lesson, third takeaway we see is that compromise is always costly. Compromise is always costly. So the people, again, were in exile because of their sin. They were, 
because the, 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 their sin, the, 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 there was a lot of sins. The predominant sin that had affected them was that of intermarriage. Now, this is, again, not any sort of indictment against interracial marriage today, but then God had called his people to, to not marry people from certain other nations because he knew these, pe- these nations did not know God or fear God and that they would lead his people away, which is what happened. It led them away all the way to exile. And yet, God calls them back. And you would think, after calling them back, after seeing this sort of sin that led to their destruction, that they would sort of be on their best behavior, and they would sort of, all right, we learned our lesson, we're back now, let's, let's not do that again. And they did respond with repentance for a while. But over and over, the sin just kept emerging. But you know, the what led to this, it started not with, not with intermarriage. It didn't just start because two people ended down at the end of the aisle, and it turns out, oh, I guess, I guess you're from a group I shouldn't have married. Oh, well, what do we do? That's not how it started. It started with them not taking the Word of God seriously. It started with them thinking that, yeah, I know what God said, but I think we can handle this. I think I'm one who can... I think I'm slightly more immune than the rest of the people to this particular sin. And then it led to other people in the community doing it and no one speaking up, but just tolerating it in in their midst. And then it began to happen more and more. And what what happened is compromise after compromise, tiny compromise after tiny compromise, despite all the mercy they received, led led to this. The last chapter of Nehemiah, even the high priest and his family are involved in intermarriage. So you had this sin that you just thought, man, it would never lead to that again. That a hundred years after being back, it was the same as it was. Do you know how many, just, just, just so many people think, well, I, I would never do this. I, this that, that sin is, is just, that's, that's something I'll, I'll never struggle with. That, that's just something I would never do. How many times that that comes to pass because it wasn't killed at the very beginning and it wasn't killed at its source. How many marriage vows have been broken, not because some unexpected temptation suddenly arose, but because flirtations and images went addressed, unaddressed, and a little compromise led to a little more compromise, led to a little more compromise, and what someone thought could never happen became inevitable. So here's the reality. We see this all throughout the Old Testament, and we see that certainly in these books, that compromise leads to another act of compromise and more and more compromise. That sin is never satisfied with the status quo, but that every act of compromise lays another brick on the path to destruction. So, So listen, the mercy of God through Jesus Christ is greater than our sin, Absolutely, and praise God. But we need to make no mistake that that compromise in our life, whether compromise is at school and, and, and just the way we speak and it's different than the way we speak at home, or whether it's, boy, I'm going to say I did something and get credit for something that probably I really didn't deserve credit for, or compromise in what we view or on social media, that, that compromise doesn't sometimes lead down a bad road for those who can't really keep it in check well enough. Compromise leads one place every single time. 
Repentance is the pathway to life, and compromise is the path to death. There are no exceptions, no matter how strong we think we are. So I would just say a takeaway and a mindset we should have in our lives is if, if you are aware of an area of compromise in your life and you think it's hidden and it's, it, it's secret, it, it, it's, in, it's in check. You know, I'm aware that there's compromise, but it, I, I think I've got it pretty well in check here. Listen, if you're, if you're keeping it alive, I'd argue that you aren't in control of it but you are giving it control over you the more you keep it alive. Because compromise is always costly in our life. Fourth perspective that I think we gain from this book is this, that our enemy hates us, but God loves us. See, as we go through life, we must remember, we should not be surprised by this fact that we have an enemy. Here, I mean, we just read this over and over again, but they had, I mean, they had more than one enemy. They just had enemies. They were surrounding them. They were ready at all moments just to, they were there all the time. They had powerful enemies. They had multiple enemies. They had motivated enemies. And these enemies, like, didn't play fair. They, They lied. They deceived. They threatened. They did anything they could do to stop the work. And the pattern all throughout the book is whenever the work would seem to get going, as soon as sort of the foundation of the temple was built, oh, the enemies came out. As soon as the walls began to be built, oh, the, the, the enemies came out. As soon as this next wave of people came obeying the Lord, oh, boy, these enemies came out. Because God's people have an enemy, and he hates us. And he lies, and he deceives, and he threatens. And so we need to know that we will hit resistance in our lives and we will hit resistance in our church and in our mission and in our marriage and in our parenting and in our school because we have an enemy. And we should be sobered by this because our, our enemy is more pow- their enemies were more powerful than them and our enemy is more powerful than my own strength. And so we shouldn't be surprised as exiles here when our enemy comes and he attacks us and he deceives and he lies and he threatens And when he attacks us and our marriage and our kids and our church and our culture, in fact, we should expect it. My son and daughter were born into a world that has a powerful enemy, and he hates them. I hate that the people in that room have an enemy, and he hates them. And if we look at the enemy, it gets a little scary. And if we look to our own strength to try to battle them on our own, it gets a lot scary. Because we think about the enemy, it could cause fear, it could cause us to shrink back, it could cause us to doubt, which was the, which was the intended effect of every attack in these books. Is that's what the enemy was trying to do. So we have an enemy who hates us which is a scary thought except for this. We have a God who loves us. And He is more powerful than our enemies. We don't have two foes who are equally... We don't have two foes that are equally powerful fighting with one another. We have a powerful enemy compared to, God, to, compared to us. And we have an enemy who is nothing compared to the all-powerful God. 
Listen, the fact that our enemy is active and is fighting means that there's a battle because God is at work and God is advancing and God is, is, is breaking new ground in the mission he is on and in our lives and in our parenting and in our marriage and in our school. And so as we think about our enemy, it should motivate us to get on my knees as a parent. It should motivate us to get in this book as a Christian, to get on our mission as a church because God is greater than our enemy. And he has given us resources to fight in his victory. So as we hit opposition, it's not a sign of mission failure, but it's a sign that the enemy is threatened. And here's the reality. Our enemy has a lot to say, but our God has the final word. And our, and our enemy is, is active now, and he is loud now. But his time of terror is very brief. And the future of God's people is that we live in peace and safety and security because we have a God who loves us. Fifth thing that I think we, we see in these books is the aim of godly leadership. The aim of godly leadership. So in these books, and in particular Nehemiah, Nehemiah is probably the most studied book in terms of just spiritual Christian leadership, probably beyond Moses. He's probably the most studied figure in reference books and in, in any sort of, you go to a Christian bookstore, look at their leadership section. Nehemiah's probably, you know, next to Moses, the guy who you're going to see about. And, and Nehemiah and Ezra really were godly leaders. They, they, they brought godly reforms. They lived under godly principles. And so we learn a lot just of their leadership, the, the importance of the word and of prayer and of just a faith that is working, right? Just this, it, the idea, right, in Nehemiah when they're rebuilding, just you have the sword in one hand and the shovel in the other as, they, as they're both, you know, as they're watching the enemy but also being about the work as they, as they watch and work, as they prayed and labored. It wasn't like, all right, we're going to pray to God for help or we're going we're gonna to help ourselves. We're going to pray and we're going to labor. See the prominence that the Word of God played in their life again and again and again, but more than just sort of specific applications of, of how they led, we, we see just a, a, a bigger principle at work that godly leadership really has one goal in mind. And godly leadership is not about the, the reputation of the leader, but godly leaders want to help others follow God. See, Ezra came back, not for his name and reputation, but for spiritual renewal of the people. Nehemiah came back so that they could rebuild the city and that they could resist enemies so that the people could worship again in, in safety. And they led in prayer and they led in the word and they led in repentance so that the people would live for and obey God more fully. That was the goal. That was the goal of the rebuild and of the spiritual renewal and of repentance. It was helping those who they were entrusted to be over to, to see and to follow God. And that's what leadership should look like in our lives. Listen, as a pastor, there's a lot of things that sort of, there's a lot of job descriptions that sort of can have place, but, but it's about one thing and it's about helping the saints of God grow in godliness and mature in Jesus Christ. The care group, your care group leaders, they, 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 have, they have a lot of jobs that they're doing, but they, they, their goal is so that you experience fellowship with God and fellowship with one another. That, that is what they, what they want to lead you towards. The role of a parent is really, you have one job as a parent. Now, there's, I'm aware, there's, there's a thousand tasks under parenting. And moms have like 3,000 tasks under parenting, but there's, there's one job. 
and it's to help these image bearers who have been entrusted to you to be ready for the day when they will come face to face with Jesus Christ. And he's not going to ask about their job or their bank account or their travel portfolio or their 401k or their grades or their educational background. Not because these things don't matter in any way. But our job is to prepare them for one thing, to be ready to meet King Jesus. Now, there's a lot of complexity in our roles and however we lead and whoever we lead, but we are, we are all called to lead and influence with our lives in some way. To be clear, we're all called to influence and lead in various roles and in different ways. We're all called to this, from the youngest in here to the oldest in here, we're all called to this. And there's a lot of complexities. We think about all the different relationships and all the different roles, but let our influence be simply this, that we help others live for and prepare for and to meet King Jesus because here's the reality. That is what everyone and every life is moving towards. So as you think about how you influence others and the effect you have on others, is that what you are most passionate about how you influence? As you think of who you have influencing you in your life, is that what they are most preoccupied and consumed with? We need to find influences in our life that have that aim and that vision and that goal. And we need to be those who ourselves who have one aim in mind that we want to influence others towards Jesus Christ. Ezra and Nehemiah, one of the things that was throughout this book is they were not consumed with their legacy. But they were consumed with people coming to relationship with God. All right, sixth and final thing we see is this, is God is more faithful than us. God is more faithful than us. You ever hear somebody say Captain Obvious, right? So Captain Obvious is when somebody says something and it's like so obvious that like no, nobody really needed to say it, right? Like we used to, like when, like with, we, when my brothers and I, like somebody would walk outside, you know, and it's like snowing down, like, oh, it's cold out here. We'd be like, oh, thank you, Captain. You know, that, that was helpful. We'd, you know, I was going to wear a tank top and, um, until you told me, you know, that, you know, six inches of snow on the ground, it was going to be cold out, right? And there's just sometimes you hear something and it's like, all right, that, that's, that's a little bit obvious here. God is more faithful than us. You might be thinking, all right, th thanks, Captain, for, for that note. Um, wasn't, wasn't sure about that. But you need to note that this isn't just sort of a point that the book makes repeatedly. That this is one of these things that, though in some ways it's obvious, that should be the takeaway that we live our life in light of this reality. That, that God is faithful, God is perfectly faithful, and he is more faithful than me. See, so often, I think we, 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 we project situations, we think about situations, we think about our own life, we think about sort of just sort of the affairs of our lives, and we see all the ways it could play out, and we leave out the most important aspect, that my faithfulness, my gifts, what I can bring to the table does not ultimately determine how it will go. See, this shouldn't just be something that we sort of, okay, we know, but this should define our reality. See, why did the people come back from exile? Why did they, the temple get rebuilt? Why did the walls get rebuilt? Why were they free from their enemies? Why did renewal take place? You will never find in this book because they had really great leaders or because they were really faithful. 
You will find over and over how they, they kept stumbling along the way, but all this happened because God was faithful to his people. So listen, I, I have sin and my, my, my sin pulls me down. It, it, can be, it can be easy to think about how my sin will deviate the God's good purposes in my life from happening. Except for this, God is faithful, so his good purposes will happen in my life. There are things that, as I think about us, me as a person, us as a church, that, that just hope we can do on our mission together, but I look inward and I don't have the strength or power to do them. But God is faithful and he will complete his mission. So your, your, your story, whatever, whatever, whatever your story is, whatever, whatever your testimony is, is not a testimony of of. Of, of your greatness, and it's not a testimony of your weakness. Your, your story is not primarily marked by what you bring to the table, whether good or whether weak. Your story is marked primarily by this, that God is faithful to you. John next week's getting baptized. You're going to hear his story. I'm going to give you a little spoiler alert on his story. God has been faithful to John, and that has changed everything. Next week, you're going to hear Janae's story. I'm going to give you a little spoiler to her story that God has been faithful to Janae and that has changed everything. Listen, God's, God's people will not end in exile, will not end in sojourners. And there can be no doubt about that. There will be doubt when we look inwardly at our failure. There will be doubt when we look outwardly at our world. There will be doubt when we look at our powerful enemy. But we can have all the confidence in the world when we look upward to our God and see that he is the one who is faithful. That he is the one that will bring us hope. So we place no hope in us, but we place all hope in the faithfulness of God. So in these books, the people stumble, and they stumble, and they stumble, and for every two steps forward, they take a step back. They start in sin, and they end in sin. But their story does not end there, because the next events we read about in Scripture is that to a people lost in sin, Jesus Christ came into the world because God is faithful. Listen, these books show time and time again, the need of man, the weakness and sin of man. And it shows time and time again the character of God to respond to their need. And that is our hope, that God is faithful. So we should look to him and have great hope because Jesus came, he kept his promises, he is keeping his promises and he will keep his promises because God is faithful. Renewal will take this entire earthly life, but renewal is sure. We have a powerful enemy who is opposed to us, but our enemy will not win. Our sin will not distract God from completing his work in our lives because we have a God who is faithful. So these books should help us to lean into him and to trust him more because our God is faithful to exiles then and exiles now. Let's pray. Father, would you help us as your people to not just know in our minds of the faithfulness of God, but to put all of our trust, to, to view our future through the framework of, to view our present circumstances, to view how we 
raise our kids and how we serve the world around us through the fact that God is faithful. So Lord, we, we want the result of, of these books in our lives to be that we look increasingly to you and are confident in the faithfulness of God, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.